This FDNY Pro Podcast is brought to you by the FDNY Foundation and its partners to share experiences from the field, best practices, and lessons learned with first responders. Learn more about our mission and how you can help support New York's bravest at fdnyfoundation.org pro. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio, and today I'll be speaking with Captain Greg Brady. Incidents involving active shooters, violent extremists, barricade situations, and other acts of aggressive, deadly behaviors represent some of the most challenging responses for the first responder community. These types of responses test the capabilities of first responders, including mass casualty care. The FDNY is the primary response agency to MCIs in New York City, which continues to be a potential target for domestic and international terrorism. Captain Brady has spearheaded an innovative approach to the FDNY warm zone triage to quickly address severely injured patients in an environment under possible threat, which we will highlight today. Captain, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, ma'am. Before we dive into this warm zone triage and what it is, tell us about your background and your background with the Counterterrorism Task Force, or CTTF. I started with the department originally in uh, 2000 as an EMT at the age of 19. I became a paramedic in 2002, but I did leave the department in 2004. Went down south to be a firefighter paramedic with the city of Kissimmee Fire Department. When I got down there, the city of Kissimmee Police Department approached me about becoming a uh, tactical medic for their police department SWAT team. Operated as a uh, tactical medic for three years. During that process, I began teaching tactical medicine and really started my tactical background teaching that more or less going through uh, being a SWAT medic and what it entails. While I was doing that, the individuals I was teaching with were deploying overseas to be uh, independent contractors doing high-threat security for diplomats. Mm -hmm. Hence, I went overseas for close to three years, did a year and a half in Iraq and uh, about a year and three months in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. In that process, my family wanted to move back to New York. I uh, contacted the fire department about gaining my job. In 2011, I came back to the department. Really took advantage of every opportunity FDNY gave me as far as training. Right. Uh, became a rescue paramedic. Mm-hmm. Was 2014 promoted to the rank of lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Worked a, a normal station for a short amount of time, and then I went over to become a hashtag uh, officer. I really developed myself uh, as an officer, responding to many different types of MCIs. For our listeners, right, who are all over the world, mm-hmm. they wouldn't necessarily understand HASTAC. So when you say HASTAC, what do you mean by that? The HASTAC officer is responsible for anything that has regarding hazardous materials uh, while operating on the medical care that operates on a hazardous materials incident or anywhere a rescue medic would operate, which would be confined space, uh, trench, or any kind of special operations, high angle, anything to that aspect as far as the medical care is concerned. So went there as a lieutenant. Uh, during that time, the rescue task force started beginning to develop around the country. And specifically, what is the role of the rescue task force? So the rescue task force was a concept developed to uh, gain access to patients where fire department or EMS resources would have normally not allowed access to because these patients are with what's called a warm zone. Tell us a little bit more about the warm zone. How is it characterized? How is it broken down? And how does the triage work? So an event unfolds. The NYPD, or law enforcement element, is responsible for neutralizing that threat. So they'll go in, and where that threat is, and the PD operation is ongoing, is what they would consider a hot zone. 
Right. All right. Where they're actively engaging that threat and they're attempting to neutralize it. And those PD operations are where that zone is restricted to is what is considered a hot zone. Okay. That area that's very close to the incident that is not 100% where the PD can turn around and say that a threat cannot happen there again would be considered a warm zone. Okay. There is no active threat in that environment at that time. And it's still not 100% safe enough where they can turn around and say that the threat will not return to that environment. That would be considered a warm zone. The cold zone is where they can guarantee that that area is secure, that it's safe to operate. We really started to explore this after the active shooter incident in Orlando. There was a lot of talk within our community, right, the world of EMS, that you have to stop dying. Yes, right? ma'am. That these are victims of trauma, and they fall into the golden hour. Uh, anyone listening in that doesn't know what that is, the golden hour refers to the amount of time a trauma victim has to get into an operating room to ensure the best chance of survival. And it starts at the time of the injury. So every minute that passes from the time the injury occurs is eating up that golden hour. And ideally, you get that patient, that victim of trauma, into a trauma center in less than an hour of the injury occurring, and that ensures the best chance of a positive outcome. So using this principle of the golden hour, I presume that the rescue task force is designed to uh, ensure the greatest number of patients could survive this situation. Yes, ma'am. So it's a different approach from our typical multiple casualty incident, not because other MCIs don't involve trauma, but other MCIs don't necessarily involve imminent danger or potential imminent danger to our personnel. Yeah, this is a, a definitely a new environment for that fire and EMS component. When we were first taught more or less our approach in EMS was scene safety was the number one, right. was the paramount goal. And this way, we're asking our providers to overlook that, give them the safety net of force protection because these patients are dying of survivable injuries because of the lack of access to them. Right. And the rescue task force was the solution to that problem. So the rescue task force is a component of the counterterrorism task force? Is that yes. accurate? Yes, ma'am. And the counterterrorism task force. So uh, right now, the counterterrorism task force includes of both fire and EMS resources. We all work together as one unit. Mm -hmm. It's EMS and fire working together to try and provide some type of response to the difficult situations, the not-so-typical MCIs. And how does the NYPD fit into this? So the NYPD is, when it comes down to it, this is an active crime scene. Mm -hmm. And the NYPD establishes the zones. They provide us the force protection. They are in charge of all movements, mm -hmm. and we are in charge of the medical care. One big team. It's the city's, New York City's response right. to these major assignments. Right. And it's the FDNY and NYPD working together mm -hmm. to get into these and do the best thing we can for the patients that are otherwise in a position where we would have not gotten to them. Now, this is the first time we've created a team like this, right? Very much, ma'am. This is new across the country. It's the law enforcement and the, the fire department personnel and EMS personnel working together as one as one team to go in instead of having individual areas of operation on these big assignments. Right, right. And that's partly because medical care wasn't being achieved when law enforcement was going in alone, right? Because their primary responsibility is to stop the killing. Very much so, ma'am. And again, it, everything's a process. So 
stopping the killing is the best medicine. Right. Stopping that spread of violence is the best medicine. Right. The second best is to come in, address life threats, right. triage these patients, and extract them and get them to the hospital. Right. It's the name of the game. That golden hour is working against us the whole entire time. Right. So the triage approach that we use is start, simple triage and rapid treatment, and it categorizes patients based on whether they have life-threatening injuries or not, and the ultimate goal is so that any pre-hospital care provider coming in behind the forward triage team knows, oh, that's a red tag patient. That means we've got to get them out very quickly, as, qu as quickly as possible, uh, because they have life-threatening injuries, whereas the yellow tag patient has a little bit more time. When you started to do training exercises with the rescue task force, that's the approach you were using to triage the patients in this environment, correct? Yes, ma'am. Just like anything else, everybody had to use what they already had right. and adopt it to the situation that, this new situation that we're going into. Right. What we found out very quickly was that start triage having its place did not work very well within the warm zone, identifying what we really needed to identify while we were there right. to actually create a priority. And I can give you an example. Sure. So somebody that would have a gunshot wound to the abdomen, where more or less there's very limited what we can do for that patient on scene, as long as they were able to walk, follow simple commands, had a respiratory rate under 30 and above 10, and had distal pulses, that individual was considered a green tag. Right, right. That characterization of that individual who they really need surgery right. to fix what's going on with them fell through the cracks. So after you make this identification, what comes next? We find more or less this uh, complication and uh, we approach it with the higher ups and having the time and the resources, we, we, we felt important to, to get together and create our own. And we began working on the FDNY warm zone triage. A lot of support from Chief Lillian Bonsignor, uh, Chief Daniel Sheehan, and uh, the Chief Department, Commissioner's Office, to take the time and resources to not only come up with the triage system, right. but to do a proof of concept, implement it into training, mm -hmm. really take a look at whether or not the process works, make adjustments to it, mm -hmm. not come up with something that just looked good on paper. Right. We really wanted something that makes sense, simple, and really works. Right. So I know that you were a lead on this, but who else participated? We created a committee, which was the Rescue Task Force Medical Committee. We have three doctors, we have training staff on there, and we have operational providers all coming together to come and see what the best approach was. The proof of concept was we started with giving a lecture to instruct the personnel of START Triage, coming up with three different scenarios, having those providers provide the START Triage in those type of environments, time them, assess how accurate they are as far as the triage is concerned, and extraction time. Then they received a lecture on warm zone triage and went through the same process. We documented the results. Second, we brought field personnel, unbeknownst to them, to come to do the same process that the instructors went through. So they received a lecture on start triage before they actually performed it. They received a lecture on warm zone triage before they actually performed it, went through scenarios, and were timed on extraction, and the accuracy of the triage itself and how they treated their patients. 
and uh, the results spoke for themselves. So the warm zone triage. Warm zone triage was almost two minutes faster per room and over 95% accurate compared to start triage, which was a little over 60% accurate and two minutes longer per room. So when the committee identified what the warm zone triage should be, what criteria was used to make these determinations? So uh, we had a chance to look at the injury patterns of, unfortunately, past incidents that happened within the United States and around the world. We really wanted to take a look at the survivable injuries that right. people were actually dying of. And we wanted to really trim all the fat off of triage and streamline it as much as possible to get to these victims. And we developed a triage system that looked at what type of injury you had and what we can do for them. Right. You take a, a core body injury, a core body injury, it's very limited amount of what we were able to do for that individual pre-hospitally. Right. At the end of the day, they need a trauma surgeon. But if somebody has an extremity injury, we're able to apply a tourniquet. And that individual, depending on what, whatever study you want to look at, has more time than that individual that has a core body injury. Right. And those are some of the types of things that we, we, we look well, at. Well, they have more time because of the tourniquet. Correct. They buy that patient a lot more time with that tourniquet than you could if you gave a, a core body injury a occlusive dressing and a, a needle decompression. On behalf of the FDNY Foundation, we thank you for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. The foundation and its partners are helping to bring this training initiative into firehouses and EMS stations throughout the five boroughs and beyond. FDNY Pro is the department's professional platform designed for first responders. Learn more about our digital subscriptions, magazines, films, events, books, and other programs at fdnyfoundation.org pro. Now back to the episode. So you're in the warm zone as the rescue task force, which is a component of the counterterrorism task force. You have law enforcement protection mm -hmm. so that they determine how the movement works, the movement of the team. Mm -hmm. And then within the center of this or sort of the nucleus of this group are fire and EMS members who are the rescue task force and they're doing triage and some treatment. Mm -hmm. So what is that triage process and what are some of the treatments? In that environment, it's our responsibility to assess our patients, treat our patients life threats, which would be limited to hemorrhage control, mm -hmm. chest seals, and needle decompression, and triage them and get them ready for extraction. So yes, we're doing very limited medical interventions and that would be more or less life-saving intervention. Anything that would be considered where that, that individual, if they didn't get that care at that time, then they would expire. Mm -hmm. Our treatment, we'd go through, depending on the number of victims, assess those patients, treat those patients, and triage them patients. Now, what we're looking for is those red patients. We need to get these reds out. Right, the red so, Yes, so our approach would be a little bit about warm zone triage, is you go up upon your patient, you assess your patient. If they're not breathing, you readjust the airway. If they're not breathing, they're considered black. And we have gotten rid of triage tags within the warm zone, and we've gone to a surgical marking pen. That oh. surgical marking pen is utilized by trauma surgeons to mark your skin right. prior to surgery. Right. Where we mark our patients is on their forehead. Okay. Reason being, makes sense approach. If I bring you a patient that no matter what's wrong with them, where instinctively you're gonna look first? Their face. Their face. They are deemed black or dead, we would put a B on their forehead. Oh, okay. That lets a provider know that that individual has been assessed and deemed deceased. Okay. 
Then we look for our red patients. Our red patients cannot follow simple commands, okay. which why is that important? Because if somebody is not able to follow simple command, it lets you know that that patient is not compensating anymore. They're starting to go into shock. Right. They are a priority. Mm -hmm. Very limited what we're able to do for those victims. Right. Or they have a core body injury. A core body consists of a major trauma in an area that spans from the top of your head to your groin, front and back. They have major trauma in that area, you will automatically have red. Okay. Again, why? Very limited what we're able to do for those patients. Right. Right? And they are survivable as long as you get them to the hospital as, as quickly as possible. Right. So if you're deemed a red, we're gonna write red right across your forehead. If you do not fit in those two criterias, we're what you call alive. And we're gonna put an A on your forehead. Reason being is if you sustain a gunshot wound to your arm and we provide a tourniquet, you have a longer time. Right. Not saying that you don't need to see medical help right away, but you can wait until you get out into the cold zone to be re-triaged with start triage. Right. Essentially, what we're saying is that you're alive, you're going to maintain be alive, and we're going to bring you outside and they'll be re-triaged. Ideally, we'd like to see our red patients go right from the warm zone to awaiting ambulances right to the hospital. And how does that piece work? Do you have a, a secondary team that comes in behind and starts moving mm -hmm. these patients? It could be a dynamic scene. That, that's going to be an operational decision based on that day. So we've got away from the, the rigid approach, mm -hmm. and we've made it a lot more dynamic. We allow that the operation as a whole makes that decision. Okay. So if that team has a capability to go inside, assess, treat, triage, and extract, that very well may be the, the approach. Or if that is not the operational best approach, we would send other teams in to extract those victims that have already been triaged out to what's called a triage transfer point outside. That's where your warm zone personnel meets your cold zone personnel. Right. That's when that patient transfer happens. And then the expectation is once that patient is in the cold zone, the members operating in the cold zone will utilize traditional START approach. Yes, ma'am. They use the FDNY uh, modified start triage model to make sure that we do not allow victims to fall through the cracks. Right. At the FDNY, we do an extremely good job at making sure that our victims and our critical victims get off the scene. Right. And if we have to do have a level of redundancy, we will have that level of redundancy. And we'll go from inside using warm zone triage to outside using modified start triage to make sure that all victims that need necessary medical care gets me necessary medical care right away. Right. In the order of priority. Yes, ma'am. Those who are most seriously injured, most critically injured, being transported first. Very much so. After the patients are triaged, extraction of the victims becomes the next priority, right, of the uh, rescue task force. So explain to our listeners the responsibility of the Tactical Operations Command. All information is being passed from the inside of area operations to the Tactical Operations Command to whatever the incident commander and the medical branch or the PD Operations Command. That's where that transfer happens and where that information pathway goes through. And the law enforcement is providing force protection in that, that group? They'll have force protection and the area would be swept prior to. On a daily basis, we respond to what we would refer to as routine 911 calls, right? It's not routine to the public, but it's routine to us as providers. And we interface with each other on a regular basis, fire, EMS, and PD. But this is now purposefully selected personnel from each discipline to work together. Tell us about how these relationships develop. Just like anything else, a, a level of trust. So uh, the Rescue Task Force was a, a new concept. Very hard to deny its you know, importance. It's something that 
we had to break down and really develop this and understand that at the end of the day, it comes down to the patient that's in there. So just like anything else, trust had to be established. And how you do that is interaction and continue to interact. And and training was a huge part of that. Training together and finding out what the kinks and and actually developing something together instead of coming to somebody and turn around and saying, well, this is how we should do it and this is how we do it. Developing together Mm. gives that trust between the NYPD and FDMY right. on how we should move forward to that. So continuing to do and, and continue to train with these individuals, that level of trust is established. And then when a real event does happen, you look for each other at this right. point, And now that communication comes through. Having that knowledge just makes that job go in the speed at which is necessary to save those patients. Right. Where do you see the CTTF in the future? Our protocols are REMAC and state and CMAC approved. I see uh, CTTF being a standard. I, I also see um, there is a lot of complexities to these types of environments. It's just like anything else where you're the individuals that are looking to cause harm to other people, try and bring up their game. We're going to have to do this. Well. So we, I see moving forward that the counterterrorism task force have a specialized approach. I, I, I do. I see or or more or less make sure that they're they're keeping up with the growing threat of the outside, and training. Um, Training is everything. Making sure that the individuals have an idea how to operate, how to at least begin the event, and and how to move forward. Uh, I think that's the most important thing, is that we maintain a level of relationship with our our law enforcement counterparts, and we continue to evolve our tactics and keep up with the uh, growing threats. Right, because ultimately it's about stop the killing, stop the dying. When the Rescue Task Force starts their trainings you, unique to the goals of the counterterrorism task force and the types of incidents that they'll be responding to. What is that training like? We know that there's certain skills that we train for all the time that are part of our certification, whether it's BLS or ALS. But what's the unique training that goes on here with the rescue task force. The unique training that, that you go through is that you take an ordinary skill, like you like you just said, you have to now perform that skill in a stressful environment with a level of ballistic gear on top of that. All these things create a complexity to providing a routine skill. Right. And the only way to get proficient in that type of environment is to continue to train in that environment. Right. Get that member used to it. Get that member operating within that environment, putting a tourniquet on under stress, providing a chest seal or performing a needle decompression under stress. Right. That is the only way that we can make that make sure that these individuals are proficient. About how heavy is the equipment that they're wearing? Uh, it's about 35 pounds. It's uh, it's not light. Uh, right. Altogether, it comes to, it's about approximately 35 pounds. And, and these routine skills after you've now made your way in haste to an area where these victims are. Now you have to try and collect yourself and perform these skills with, you know, people yelling, screaming. I think one of the things that I I take away from a past event that you had brought up with with, uh, Orlando was that I I know I remember reading a report where one of the things that bothered the providers the most was the consistent ring of the cell phones. Trying to provide medical care when you have a, a, just an absolute environmental overload right. or sensory overload right. is not an easy task. Right. It reminds me of 9-11 yeah. um, when all the pass alarms were going off. And to this day, when I hear those pass alarms, I kind of have a uh, stressful reaction to it. It takes me right back to that moment because that's all you heard was all these alarms going off. So I understand your point completely. 
Um, and I guess it really is a testimony to you've got to keep practicing. Right? You've got to keep practicing. How often would you say that uh, training takes place for the task force? Training for the ta uh, task force uh, happens quarterly. Uh, just like anything else, it, we, have a, we have a lot of benefits of being a large department. You right. also have a lot of uh, obstacles being a large department, and training is one of them. Right. So we've stepped up our training. We train within that quarter. We train uh, probably close to 18 to 20 times during that training, and that's more or less a full-scale exercise. Right. Every training day is almost a full-scale exercise with the right. teams that we bring in, and we're, we're training over 100 people every, uh, every training day. It's a large undertaking, and, like and that's done almost close to 20 times a quarter. You recently received an award at Vital Signs 2019 EMS Conference for Clinical Delivery Innovations. Uh, for those who don't know, this award recognizes progressive ideas in clinical practices that lead to positive patient outcomes. And that's based on your lead role on developing this warm zone triage. Congratulations. Thank you very okay. much, Ram. Tell me, how, how does it feel? Uh, it feels great. I, I, would, I would have to say that it was a 100% team effort. I think it was something that we should all be proud of. Our listeners should know that uh, we're going to have a very detailed article that you've written about this whole process, what the warm zone triage is, more elaboration on how it came to be, the way that you validated it. So our listeners can look forward to reading more about this topic in our training publications. Our entire country, if not the whole world, is at risk for having to provide care to mass numbers of patients. An easy approach to triage in a difficult situation can make a real difference. And that's what you've done here. You've created a simple approach for this unique environment. Thank you for the passion that you bring to it. Thanks for being here today and sharing with our listeners the warm zone triage. Ma'am, thank you very much for having me on, and I, uh, I appreciate the continued support of everything to, to make this happen. Thank you very much. And I'd like to thank everybody on the Rescue Task Force Medical Committee, Chief Daniel Sheehan and Chief Lillian Bonsignor for all your tremendous support when it came down to this. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.